listening to Radio Maria. This is our Diving Deeper program. Today I'm very happy to have with us Martin Kohansky, who is the creator of the Universalis website that I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of and may regularly use. I know I do. But today Martin is here to tell us about his book, the Creed in Slow Motion. Good That's evening, wonderful. Lucia. Thank you. That's in welcome. Not at all. Thank you for this invitation. Um, I feel honoured by it and I hope I'll live up to it. Uh, let me start by reading you an email I got only yesterday. It's knocked me flat and perhaps you will see why. As well as praising Universalis, he says, I want to say how much I am enjoying your book, The Creed in Slow Motion. I decided to read it as part of my Lent reading. What a joy it is. It has been so helpful and insightful, and yet written in such a way that dimwits like me can gain so much from it. I wish that I had had your book 50 years ago. I will treasure the book, and when I have finished it, I know I will continue to dip in and out of it for the rest of my life. I don't know about you, but hearing that makes me wonder what I did to deserve it. 27 years ago, I founded Universalis. Uh, Universalis, for those of you who don't know about it, is a website and a collection of apps which gives you the whole of the liturgy of the hours for every hour of every day of every year. Morning prayer and evening prayer, which we call Lords and Vespers, and the Anglicans, I think, call Matins and Evensong. Compline, night prayer, and more. Altogether, seven times a day, we have psalms and prayers and readings to get us closer to God. By now, tens of thousands of people use Universalis every day, and that is humbling. I never set out intentionally in advance to achieve all that. I just thought, this is a good thing to do, let's try and do it. That is something can happen to any of us. Possibly it has happened to many of you. Sometimes God takes a simple thought and makes something wonderful out of it. It's him doing it, not us. Now, one of the things in Universalis is what I call its About Today page, which, among other things, has brief reflections on the lives of the saints or certain gospel passages. And one day I thought it would be good to say something about the creed. Nothing spectacular, no big plan. Again, this is a good thing to do. Let's try and do it. It was a revelation, and now it has turned into a book, and as you have heard, it has turned into a book that knocks people sideways. Looking back, I think I can begin to see why. The creed for most of us means what we stand up in church every Sunday and say. What are we thinking when we say it? We are not thinking, what does this mean? Do I believe it? Do I understand it? We are mostly thinking, how can I get the words right? How can I keep in step with everyone else and not make an exhibition of myself? I'm not being cynical, I'm just being human and admitting it. The thing is, that is not what the creed is for. It is not a set piece for communal recitation. It is the bones of our faith. It is what makes us Christians. It defines what being a Christian means. Anyway, I started the opposite exercise of standing up in church. Instead of saying, I believe in one God with one eye and what everyone else was saying, I started to think about every phrase, sometimes every word. There is I. There is I believe in. There is God. There is one God. And with every word, there was new richness and new excitement. To be honest, in terms of a rating of thrills per word, there is nothing to beat the creed. Now, I'm not a specialist. I'm not a deep theologian. I'm just me. So the question arises, should a just me be doing all this thinking? Shouldn't we be leaving it to the experts whose job it is? And the gospel replies. It says no. There is a little exchange in the Gospels that has been almost forgotten. The evangelists themselves find it so uninteresting that they can't quite remember who spoke the important words, Jesus or the man he was talking to. 
here are those words. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This looks like a quotation from the first of the Ten Commandments, but it isn't. Jesus has expanded it. Those words, with all your mind, are not in the law of Moses. They are new. They change everything. They make theology possible. Indeed, they make all science possible, since in practicing the physical sciences, we are praising God by celebrating his works with the mind. With all your mind changes everything in two ways. First of all, it says that the love of God must not be just a feeling, but an act, an act of the whole person, which includes an act of the mind. So a religion based on nothing more than feelings of holiness is no religion at all. The second consequence of with all your mind is more radical. God will not demand the impossible. If we are commanded to love God with our minds, it must be possible to love God with our minds. God must be lovable with the mind. That is comprehensible. This makes theology a rational activity, but it does more. It places a constraint on the activity of God. If God is to be lovable with the mind, then he cannot act just arbitrarily, because whatever God does must be accessible to reason. The mind is not often thought of as an organ of love. Usually it's more of a cold, calculating machine. But love with all your mind disproves all that. The mind is every bit as much of an organ of love as the heart is. The way we love with the mind is by understanding. The way we agree about what we understand and communicate it is by finding words to express it. And the words work both ways. Understanding gives rise to the words to express it, and the words give rise to understanding. And so the idea of a creed begins to take shape. The next step is this. Man is a rational animal, but also a fallible one. We make mistakes. More than that, when we're told something we find hard or puzzling or simply don't like, we find ourselves turning to something we do like or understand, or else we just push it into a corner and forget about it. That's human nature. And that's why sooner or later, every science needs not just its words, but its textbooks and its agreed statements of what is true. The science of being, which we call theology, is no exception. We need a creed. Now, clearly, I'm not going to be able to compress a whole book into a few minutes. But let me start out on the journey so that you can see how the ideas come alive. Start with the first word, I. I said casually that we say the creed at mass. Of course, that isn't really true. We don't say it. I do. This is important and it matters. And most of the Mass it really is we and no doubt about it. It is good and right that it's like that. We give glory to God in the Gloria. We ask the Lamb of God to take pity on us in the Agnes Dei. In the prayers addressed to God by the priest, even in the Eucharistic prayer itself, it is we. If I've counted rightly, there are three places in the Mass where we say I. The first time is when I proclaim out now loud that I have sinned excessively and it is all my fault. It isn't we, it is I. I am responsible. The third time is when I quote the centurion with the sick servant. I am not worthy to receive you under my roof. It isn't we, it is I. I am unworthy. The second time we say I is the one we're on about now. It is when we say the creed. Here is the reason that I is needed. To say we is to shy away from any real commitment. Suppose that someone laughs at me for holding the weird belief that a Jew is reigning over the universe. How nice it would be to step back and say, that is what we as Christians believe. It lets me off the hook. The verb believe is not an act anymore. It's just an identity, a part of the Christian brand. That is to say, it is nothing. 
but I say I in the creed, and so do you. So it is more important than ever to find out what I am committing myself to when I say the words I believe. So then, I believe in. If I look through the creed to see what I'm committing myself to by saying it, I see a strange thing. I'm not saying I believe that this or that fact is true, but I believe in someone or something. It comes over and over again. Now, there are times where you can say I believe in, meaning nothing more than existence. Think of I believe in Father Christmas or I believe in unicorns. And that's not the only use of the words, and it's not how the words are used in the creed. When I say I believe in you to the turbulent teenager next door, I don't mean that I believe in his existence. I mean that I have belief in him, that I am putting my trust in him. And that is what I am doing when I say I believe in God. As far as existence goes, anybody can believe that God exists. Even pagans do, though they don't know him well enough to dare to believe in him. Even atheists believe in a principle that gives order to the world and makes science possible. Just believing that God exists is an act of the pure, detached mind. It's easy, it doesn't have any consequences. But believing in God, putting our trust in God, entrusting ourselves to God, is an act not only of the mind, but also of the whole person. It is rare because it is hard. And it is hard because it really does have consequences. To believe in is to make oneself vulnerable. If I believe in you, then I'm opening myself to you. I'm deliberately failing to put up barriers against whatever you might take into your head to go and do. If I believe in the teenager next door, I won't take care to lock up my silver every time he comes round. By believing in you, I am giving you the power to let me down just when I thought I could trust you most. I could have protected myself against that. I could have locked up the silver. But by believing in you, I have decided not to protect myself at all. Belief that a God exists is an act of pure reason. But belief in God is an act of love. I say an act deliberately because that is actually orthodox theology. When I am saying a creed, I am not saying the words, I am making a commitment. Imagine yourself saying, I hereby believe, and you'll get the idea. Just one final bit then to show you the word God. God calls each of us by name, even the sparrows. But we cannot return the compliment because God has no name. This is true in all the religions of the children of Abraham. God, Deus, Dieu, Book, Got, every one of them is just an ordinary word made special by writing it with a capital letter. In the Greek, Hotheos just says the God. In Arabic, Allah just says the God or the Spirit. This namelessness is universal, so it must be important. What do we mean by it? Or rather, what does God mean us to mean by it? Early in the history of Revelation, God manifests himself to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Horeb and tells him to lead the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Moses thinks ahead to what the Israelites are going to say when he tells them to leave a land of abundance and go out to be tormented by hunger and thirst in the wilderness. They will ask what his authority is. They will ask who the God is who is telling Moses to tell them to do this. So prudently and reasonably, Moses asks God for his name. And God answers Moses, I am who I am he says. Say that who is has sent you. That is, under the guise of giving an answer, God in fact avoids answering the question at all. God refuses to answer because what is the name of God is not a valid question. It is as if Moses had asked something like, what colour is the number 12? 
asking God what is your name means asking which God are you. But God is not a God. The pagans persecuted the early Christians as atheists because they said we have no gods, and they got our beliefs exactly right. We do not believe in gods. There are no gods. God is not a god. In every religion with gods, a god is a spirit that is part of the world and has some powers over it. On the other hand, God is not part of the world and does not just have powers over it. God is the one because of whom it exists at all. It's good to listen to the pagans sometimes. Heretics and pagans are helped to us in understanding the creed. Heretics, because while we have got used to the sacred words just sliding past us, feeling familiar, they have seen what startling things the words actually say. And pagans are helped because they show us a certain kind of foundation what anybody at all can reasonably have come to know without the benefit of any revelation. We say God is nameless. Many pagans do actually believe in the existence of the nameless God who is the creator of all things. None of the gods they do name and talk about is identified as the source of all being. Their creation myths stop short of actual creation from nothing. Whatever story they come up with, there's something already there. For the Vikings, a cow licks a lump of ice into the shape of the gods. You don't ask where the cow comes from. And yet, often the stories sound absurd as if the narrator knows that they are answers to a question that ought not to be being asked, because it has no answer. And yet, the gods of the pagans are immensely powerful. They can act within the world for good or ill. They need to be persuaded or placated, but they are not the creator. They are mere subsidiaries. In this way, even the pagans are right about the God who created the heavens and the earth. God the creator is the unnameable, the unsummarizable, the uncapturable, the indescribable, the God about whom, the theologians tells us, nothing whatever can be truly said. And so for the pagans, no one must attempt to talk about him or name him. To talk to him and believe in him, as the children and stepchildren of Abraham claim to do, is simply presumptuous. In all this, paganism is right. God truly is an infinite distance away from us, and it truly is a distance we can never bridge. We can never enter into a relationship with God. Where paganism falls short is that it forgets that there are two sides to this infinite gulf. We cannot bridge the infinite gap, but God can. We cannot enter into a relationship with God, but God can enter into a relationship with us. Salvation history documents this, and the creed proclaims it. And now it's time for some music. And what I've chosen is the opening of the creed from Rossini's Petite Messe Solennelle. I like it because it shows the thrill and the excitement of belief and of doctrine.
You're listening to Diving Deeper. This is, we have Martin Johansky on the phone. Let me just find him. He's, where is he? There he is. <laughs> yes. Am I'm I afraid here? you have to be so. Oh, dear. Martin Johansky, I'm so sorry. All right. Right. We are back. We've had another little technical hitch, but we're back. And I think the music was playing beautifully. That is excellent news. I, <laughs> I hope very, the people, very people exciting piece of music that was. Thank you very much. Right. Now, you asked me to say something of a vaguely Lenten character, so let's see what I can get out of the book for that. Um, I'll start with a parable. I call it the Parable of the Shadows. On the gravestone of St. John Henry Newman, there is the motto, Ex umbris et imaginibus in veritatem out of shadows and images, into the truth. But there are shadows and shadows, and there are faithful shadows that can tell us the truth. Sometimes nothing else can do it. Imagine yourself standing on a high place looking out at the landscape. A shadow moves swiftly across. Its shape tells you what is a shadow of. So you look up and you screw up your eyes against the sky to see if you can see the aeroplane. The shadow was a shadow. It was not the plane itself. But it was telling you something, at least. And that something was true. I walk along a path in the afternoon with the sun behind me. My shadow stretches in front of me. It moves when I move, and when I stop, it stands still. It goes without saying that the shadow is always where I am and never where I am not. Looking at it more closely, it's curved when I'm curved and straight where I am straight. It is a faithful shadow and it tells the truth. Now, shadow is not always truth and it's not always truth in every sense. The shadow accompanying me on my walk is 13 feet long and I am not. It is flat and dark grey and I am not. The shadow of a plane flying over a range of hills rides, leaps and bounces while the plane itself goes smoothly and serenely on. So you have to use discernment. The right kind of faithful shadow shows one those aspects of the truth that it is able to show, and thus indicates truths one might not be able to perceive in any other way. The wrong kind of shadow, or the right kind looked at wrongly, makes no sense at all. So to take an example from the Creed, when we call the sun the sun, we do not mean that God the Son is a literal Son in our sense. As Dionysius the Areopagite and St Thomas Aquinas both tell us, nothing we say positively about God can be literally true. What we do mean by Son in the Creed 
is that the unknowable relationship between the unknowable and the unknowable is such that when its shadow is cast onto the landscape of human thought, like the plain's shadow is cast on the hills, that relationship has a shape that we recognize as father and son. So that shadow is a faithful shadow of the truth of God, just as my shadow on the path tells the truth about me. We need sense and discernment when it comes to interpretation. I am not flat and grey. The plain above the hills is not bouncing all over the sky. And the father is not older than the son. All these are obvious errors, and no one really risks falling into them. Other potential errors are subtler, and we do need to take care. But all the same, there is no need to feel ashamed of shadows. Shadows can be faithful, and faithful shadows can tell us the truth, and the creed is full of them. Now we've jumped forward in the creed a bit to the words, for our sake. God the Son was crucified for our sake. Those last three words are the most puzzling in the entire creed. Every explanation of them seems wrong. It is possible simply to fall back on authority and believe verbally that God the Son was crucified for our sake without ever stopping to think what that might mean. The excuse would be that it isn't our job to know these things. The clever people who wrote the creed knew what they meant, and all we need to do is parrot their words without thinking what we are saying. This cop-out is forbidden by the commandment to love the Lord our God with all our mind. I'm not saying that it is necessary to be a theologian to be saved. Indeed, one of the wonderful things about Christianity is that this is not the case. Not all religions are like that. It is quite all right for a simple soul to answer, what does for our sake mean with, I don't exactly know, the kingdom of heaven is full of them. But for anyone, simple or not, to answer, what does for our sake mean with, oh, nothing really, or I can't be bothered to think about it, that's another matter entirely. It's an evasion and a scandal. Now, thinking about abstract things is like watching shadows in the landscape. The landscape is the concept that you know and you have and you're familiar with. The shadow is the way that the abstract thing appears in terms of those concepts. The trouble is that concepts shift their meanings over the ages. That is why Jesus practically never used them in his teaching. He used crops and weeds, yes, and kings and robbers and sheep, especially sheep, because those things never change their meaning. A sheep today is what a sheep was 2,000 years ago. But now we have the difficulty with the crucifixion. People who believe in justice work out explications of Jesus dying for our sake in terms of justice. But that was when the word justice meant some kind of rightness. For most of us today, justice means well-paid lawyers of their rich clients. That is not real justice. The word doesn't work anymore. The landscape of justice has disappeared. And the shadows of truth on that landscape don't have any meaning for us. Perhaps one day we'll get justice back. But just at the moment, we can't. Debt used to mean something. It meant a kind of unbalancedness between one person and another. An imbalance, but at the same time, a relationship. In those terms, a shadow, meaning a debt to God from man so big that only God to pay it, had some kind of expansionary power. But nowadays, debt is not about people, but about institutions. The machine puts us into debt for no reason. It buys and sells us by buying and selling our debts. Sometimes, for no reason, it cancels them. Since the word debt means nothing, any explanation which uses that word is useless. So I want to try another word, another landscape, another shadow on that landscape. The word is atonement itself. Now, most of the high, grand words used in ethics and theology come from suitably high, grand origins like Latin and Greek. Atonement is different. It started life not in grandeur, but in unpretentious English 
simplicity. When you are not at one, you need to be made at one, to be at one. And the act of at oneing is naturally at onement. Now, atonement soon acquired the elevated manners of its grand neighbours, and by pronouncing its middle syllable tone, we discreetly gloss over its humble origins. But it's time to undo that, because the origins are the most important thing. So here is a story about at onement. I have a friend I will call Catherine. When she was a little girl at school, all the other girls ignored her because she was English and different from them. So she fell into the habit of stealing little things to give them to the others, hoping to become visible to them. It's a common enough thing at a certain age, and as is common, the teacher caught Catherine, and there were tears and understanding and pity and forgiveness. Catherine was forgiven, but she was not yet at one. A day or two later, the teacher announced that she had found some money in her pocket and would someone please go to the sweet shop and get some sweets with it for the class. She chose a girl to go. She chose Catherine. This action was the at one It was right. It was so right that Catherine still remembers it 70 years later. The core of the rightness of what the teacher did was that the teacher, the creditor, if you like, the one who was not the sinner, handed over control of the situation to the sinner without conditions, resolving to let whatever was going to happen as a result happen. Only love could make things right between them, and love and self-protection cannot mix. As with people, so with God. To the extent that God and man are not at one, both God and man have to act so as to bring back the at-oneness, and they have to find the right way to do it. To me, at-oneing is the key to what Jesus did. If we start from atonement, the high grand version, then we start with the idea that someone has to make up for what happened, because atonement is a very one-sided thing. Man sinned against God, now man has to make up for it to God somehow. From there, relentless in human logic takes over. We as mere human beings couldn't make up for the fall, so the God the Son has to become man to do it on our behalf. But if the story of Catherine shows a universal pattern where at one moment is concerned, and I think it does, it sheds light on the crucifixion from a different direction. It gives us a new possible angle from which the whole thing might make sense to us, a new angle that might help when other angles seem unhelpful. Let's clear the ground before starting. It is not the case that in the manger at Bethlehem there lay a going-to-be-crucified baby. It is not the case that John in the Jordan baptised the going-to-be-crucified Son of God. To ascribe future crucifixion like this would amount to denying the existence of free will in human affairs. It would reduce Judas, Caiaphas, Peter and Pilate to the status of puppets. Now, you could try God the Son became incarnate and accepted crucifixion. That's better but I still think it misses the point slightly but significantly. It would be more enlightening to say, God the Son became incarnate and accepted whatever would happen as a consequence of his incarnation, anything at all, up to and possibly including crucifixion. Just as in at oneing herself to Catherine, her teacher gave up control over Catherine would do with the money, so in God's at oneing himself to us, God gives up control. He says, let whatever happens, happen. This is really what love is. At its core, perfect love is like writing a blank check. You fill in the date and the name and you sign it, but you leave the amount blank. 
If you are lucky, the payee will fill in the amount that is right and reasonable for the circumstances. If you are less lucky, he will fill in the amount that covers everything you possess. Your act of love, though, was the same either way. You gave your consent to whatever would happen. What makes it an act of love is not the particular outcome, but the fact that you have given control over the outcome to the other person. So the key to the atonement is that the omnipotent God embraces contingency. He puts himself, like us, on the receiving end of what happens. As we live contingent lives, so too will God. As human beings, we have to accept whatever the outcome of the world's events turns out to be, and so too, while incarnate, will God. As incarnate God, the Son accepts the whole course of his life on earth, whatever it turns out to be, and in this way he makes himself at one with us. Seeing it this way also protects us from some mistaken view of the Father's role in all this. The silly picture we can so easily get of a father sending his son off to suffer and die, which sounds more like a cruel father than a loving one, is no longer there. The father does not cruelly send his son on earth to be crucified, but generously lets his son come and be one of us without setting any limit at all on what the consequences might be. I'm not claiming with this story that one moment, that this is how it was. Rather, I'm offering another way of seeing a shadow of what happened. In its way, it is a truthful shadow. And now I think it's time for more music. Uh, and it's another sung creed, but this time it's from Bach's great B minor mass. And here there's a richness of texture. I think that there are six or seven different voices all twining together to show the richness of the faith we have. Thank you very much. Let's have a listen. a gentle reminder that the phone lines are open and Martin is here to take your calls or questions. The number is 01223 375564.
You're listening to Diving Deeper. And today I'm very happy to have Martin Kohansky. He's been talking about his his book, which is The Creed in Slow Motion. And it's been absolutely fascinating so far. I'm really, really interested. Martin, please, if you could continue, that would be wonderful. Of course, I will continue and conclude. Um, at the beginning, we had how the book began and how the creed begins. We've had a bit from the middle and the atonement. So it seems only fair now to go to the end of the book and the end of the creed and actually after the end of time. The creed began before the creation did and it reaches its conclusion after time has ended, at least our present kind of time. Although its final statements are immeasurably far away in time, they're surprisingly earthy. There's no soaring up into pure spirituality, all angels and clouds and harps. The creed does not expect us to look forward to a purely spiritual future. Instead, it insists on the resurrection of the dead, which means resurrection of body with soul. A risen body and a risen soul but body and soul nonetheless. As for the nature of this risen state, all we really have is a set of indications. We know that it must involve becoming more ourselves, not less. But what that means, we don't really know. There is a tradition that sees the condition of man after the fall as being not a punishment, but an act of mercy. Just as when a doctor puts a patient into an induced coma to let a brain injury heal, so God separates us from our full powers until we are healed of the fall and capable of handling them. Well, whatever the truth of that idea, the joys of the next world are reincarnate joys, not bodiless and bloodless ones. They are the smell of a bonfire or gunpowder or a good cigar. They are the taste of a top-notch cassoulet. Or rather, those bodily pleasures are shadows of the joys to come. The creed has implied over and over again that we are not a body with our soul squeezed in it like a ghost in a machine, and not soul inexplicably burdened with a dead weight of flesh. Nobody has a body. Nobody has a soul. We are both body and soul. This is a good part of what the Incarnation is all about, and it's what some heretics love to get wrong about the Incarnation. But now, at the end, the creed stops implying that it comes right out and says it in so many words, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Before death, we were one, we were body and soul, but we were at odds within ourselves. At death, we were cut in half. In our resurrection, we are made whole and we are made one. If the human condition can be said to involve a constant coming to terms with our own mortality, the Christian condition goes one step further. We need to come to terms with our own immortality. Mortality, the kind that the pagans believe in, has poignancy to it and a high puzzle sadness, but it brings a great gift with it. That gift is meaninglessness. If nothing really matters in the end, then it doesn't matter what I do. To party as if there were no tomorrow is easy, when there really is no tomorrow. But this gift of meaninglessness is denied to us Christians. Everything we do has a meaning. Everything matters. Whatever I do now at this moment changes what I am, even infinitesimally. Doing it means that I will be in a state of having done it, not just until I die, but forever. All our acts are definitive and irreversible. If this life is about becoming, and the next life is about being what one has become, that is all the answer to why be good that anyone ever really needs. I commend the contemplation of immortality to you as an exercise worth doing. But what will it be like? 
Someone once compared the mourners at a funeral to caterpillars gathered sadly round a chrysalis. So imagine St Francis preaching to the caterpillars. What could he tell the caterpillars about butterflies that they could ever understand? Even if they did understand, what would they find desirable in such a state of life? The answer to every question we have about our future state is to remember what the Red Admiral Caterpillar thought when St Francis preached metamorphosis to it. It couldn't see much point in a future state in which one couldn't crawl over nettle leaves munching. The next world will be like a surprise in a drama. It is unimaginable in advance, but once it has happened, it will all fit in with everything and fit so well that it will be impossible to imagine, looking back, that things could have turned out any other way. Until then, I hope that the time spent reading this book has not been wasted. The time spent writing it certainly hasn't been. Love as you are loved. Live as if you are immortal, because you are. And see you there. And now the final piece of music is also to do with the end. It is Love Without End, Amen, by George Strait. I got sent home from school one day with a shiner on my eye. Fighting was against the rules and it didn't matter why. When Dad got home I told that story just like I'd rehearsed. Then stood there on those trembling knees and waited for the worst. And he said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. A secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said, daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end, amen. It's a love without end, amen When I became a father in the spring of 81 There was no doubt that stubborn boy was just like my father's son And when I thought my patience had been tested to the end I took my daddy's secret and I passed it on to him I said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said was just between us I said, daddies don't just love their children every now and then It's a love without end, amen It's a love without end, amen Last night I dreamed I died and stood outside those pearly gates When suddenly I realized there must be some mistake If they know half the things I've done they'll never let me in and Then somewhere from the other side I heard these words again they said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said was just between us You see, daddies don't just love their children every now and then It's a love without end, amen It's a love without end beautiful song there very inspirational lyrics so you've certainly want, made me want to get my hands on, on a copy of your book Martin <laughs> that's splendid news absolutely and um, I actually have uh, we've got a copy in, in our studio so it's um, I might have a little butchers at that before I make my way home and um, you, 
so uh, is it okay if I plug your book and say you can you can get this anywhere online or any good bookshops? I think our yes. listeners will know where to go. But you do have a website oh. as well, don't you? Um, the book has a website. The so. book has a website, creedinslowmotion.com. And Obviously, I've checked that out. Slow motion is all one word. Yeah, and I've, I've checked that out, and it's a, a, a great website. There's, um, so there was a little quote on there that said, for people who recite the creed in church, it's like a Calvary charge. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that really stuck with me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What, what you'll also find if you look further down on that site that there's a priest in Grenada who was so inspired by the book that he's done a whole series of talks based on it. There's like 53 of them or something. And they're very clear, very simple, and they're utterly charming as well. So I recommend those. You just scroll down creedinslowmotion.com and you'll see them. Creedinslowmotion.com. There you go, listeners. Check that out. Martin... It's been wonderful to have you with us um, again. I apologise for the few little blips that we had, but no, it's been a right. pleasure. You've been very patient with me, <laughs> but it's been a pleasure to have you with us. And well, I, thank you, I hope Lucia, you come back. And, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. Martin Kohansky, thank you very much. God bless. <laughs>